Hey, what's up, Resonate? It's good to see you today. So good to see you on, 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 on a day where we will celebrate future tense, the Warriors' victory in Game 7. Amen? All right. Hey, hey, we want to welcome you, Hayward. We love you like crazy. We're so glad that you're part of something massive. Not only are you a physical campus here in the Bay Area, but we're aspiring to plant more campuses all throughout the Bay Area so that we could actually uh, preach the gospel to make sure that Jesus is making um, disciples upon disciples so that he can make much of himself. And that's why we're here. And if you are at home joining us uh, through our online uh, ministry, hey, so glad that you're joining us today. Um, We are continuing our uh, series called The Facets. Now, facets, as you know, it's like a side of a, a beautiful gem or a side, rather, or perspective. And when you look at something so beautiful as a diamond, you realize that a lot of illumination, a lot of light and brightness comes out of it. And it's important to just turn it. When you turn a diamond, you just see the brilliance in your eyes. Well, this is what we're doing with the gospel of the resurrection. And there's no more beautiful of, of a picture that I think uh, paints that picture in the Bible than in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where Paul writes about this beautiful diamond. And so from Easter, we, I gave you an overview of the resurrection. And, and from there, we talked about the grace of the resurrection. Last week, we talked about the truth of the resurrection, how if the resurrection isn't true, and now Paul turns to a really rather very interesting section in the Bible where he says, if the resurrection is true, last week was the negative perspective, and today he's going to give the positive perspective, meaning if the resurrection is true, then these are the implications for your life. And this is what I pray, that today, not because of me, not because of my power, not because of my words or my convincing or my galvanizing gifts, nothing like that, but because the Holy Spirit is speaking to you, that some of your lives will be changed forever. I really believe that. Because what I don't want to happen is you minimize this beauty of the resurrection. And that's why I'm going to start my sermon in a rather unusual way by giving you a theological statement for you to wrestle with from the start. Now, you might think that it's a little cold start for the beginning, but I do this on purpose. And here's my reason. Because I think you and I are minimizing the resurrection. And I need you to see it bigger and grander as Paul would present it to us. So here's the theological statement. Ready? For Hayward Online, everybody here. Ready? Here's the theological statement. From the very beginning of time, from the annals of time to now, of all of history, there's only been one resurrection of a human being. Do you know that? Only one. And his name is Jesus. Only one. Now, immediately, you might be confused. You're like, well, hasn't there been more resurrections? I mean, we look at even the New Testament. We, we see Lazarus was resurrected. Well, we see, you know, Jairus' daughter being resurrected. We see in the Old Testament, the widow's son was resurrected. We see in Acts chapter 9, where Peter actually raises somebody from the dead, like Tabitha. She was resurrected. What? How could Jesus be the only person that has ever been resurrected? Let me answer it for you. You see, all the other things that we're talking about, all these people who went from death to life, let's not confuse the difference between resurrection and resuscitation. You see, all the other times was called resuscitation. There's a big difference between resuscitation and resurrection, and namely this, that resuscitation is where you go from death to life 
But you go back to the same life that you came from. That's resuscitating. Like Jerry's daughter woke up and she just was still Jerry's daughter. Lazarus woke up to the moment that he died. I mean, he was the same person. But the resurrection is that you go from death to not just only life, but life eternal where you receive the redemptive body and you receive the glorious body in a way that you go back to a life that you've never known before ever, ever known before. Listen, you have five senses now that you experience, and by then you might experience a thousand senses. And so you're going back to a radical resurrected life in which you'll never, ever, ever experience. So it's radically different. It's radically different. But you might say, well, well, well if that's when the second coming of Christ and we actually receive these new bodies, Ryan, then what happens when we die now? What happens if we die now until Christ comes back? Do we have a resurrected body? No, you won't get a six-pack yet. You won't. But what happens now? Well, here's what we know when we die now until the second coming of Christ. Jesus says we'll be with him in paradise, don't we? We, we experience it. We'll be with the presence of Jesus, right? Yeah, you know, um, we, we don't believe in soul sleep. We don't believe in purgatory. In fact, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, to be absent from the body is to be present with Christ. See, when you die, absent from your body, you're present with Jesus. In fact, he goes on in first, I mean, Philippians 1. He goes, my desire is to depart from my life so that I may be with Christ, which is far better more. See, he, he's saying, once I die, I'm going to be with Christ. Remember on the thief on the cross as he was dying? He said, remember me? And what does Jesus say to the thief? He says, today you'll be with me in paradise. And so what this means is that when we die now, we'll immediately be with Jesus and yet our redemptive resurrection, a full resurrection, will not happen until Jesus' second coming. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 5, I think it's, I mean, 2 Corinthians 5, where Paul continues to elaborate in this picture. He says, we yearn to be fully clothed, meaning in the second coming we'll be fully clothed, but until then we're not fully clothed yet. In fact, and more to come next week, if you're interested in how this all works out, you have to be here next week. But Romans 8.23 says this. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, we have the first fruits of the spirits. We groan inwardly. Now, this is a picture of all of earth and all of creation, all the trees, all the ocean groaning because they're not quite what they're meant to be yet. We're groaning. We're groaning. And, but yet we have the first fruits, which is Jesus. And we're groaning in him because through him, he goes on, uh, as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, listen, the redemption of our bodies. You see, he's saying when the second coming of Jesus comes, everything will be completely redeemed and glorified, including creation, and then we will receive our bodies then. But until then, we are with Jesus. We don't have our redemptive bodies. And the reason why I tell you this we, as we first start is because when we're looking at 1 Corinthians 15, that is the resurrection that Paul is talking about, nothing less. So again, let us not minimize this idea, this theology of resurrection to be just death to life. The Paul is talking about death to life, life forevermore in the glorified and redeemed bodies. That's what he's talking about. I need you to know that because I don't want you to compress the beauty of the resurrection. And with that, 
I hope you have your Bibles. If you do, please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And that's where we're going to spend the rest of our time here. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we're going to look at verses 20 through 24. And this is just really rather a difficult text. A difficult text. You know, sometimes like, this is, this is a preacher's confession here. Okay, sometimes I, I love teaching the Bible. I love studying the Bible. I, love, I wait and I long to present it to you and teach you and guide you. But sometimes I'm like, maybe I should give this text to some other pastor. <laughs> you know, maybe, maybe I could just shop it out, you know, because this is hard. Well, we come to one of those hard texts, but we're going to address it verse by verse. And so it might be important for you, if you have a physical Bible, to keep it near you. If you have a digital Bible, keep putting your fingers there so that you can light up and, it, and your phone doesn't fall asleep, okay? And so 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if you're able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? And I'll pray once again that the Holy Spirit preach a better sermon than the one that you're about to hear from me. 1 Corinthians 15, starting verse 20. This is the word of the Lord. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, and by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. But do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God, and I say this to your shame. This is the word of the Lord for today, and all God's people said... Amen. Please have a seat in all of our campuses, including your homes. Listen, this is a passage that you've read 1 Corinthians 15, and this section you just kind of breeze through because this is rather jumpy, and what Paul says sometimes does not make sense. Let me try my best to make sense of it for you. This, Paul is appealing to all of us three ways that the resurrection impacts us greatly today. Today And here's our first. The power of the resurrection guarantees our future. It guarantees 100% our future. Would you look at verse 20? But in fact, that is a guarantee that Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. 
For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, and then that is coming those who belong to Christ. Now, let me explain. This is a picture of eschatology. This is a vision of what is to come for all of us. And the key passage or the key word in this section is mentioned twice. It is the word firstfruits. Now listen, you and I don't live in an agrarian culture, and so we don't know what first fruits really mean. But back then, when it came to the time of harvest, somebody, a farmer, would gather the first fruit to identify what kind of harvest that was to come. In fact, uh, in Leviticus 23, there was a practice that God asked all the priests to do, that you would get the first fruit and offer it to the Lord first. It's kind of like our tithes and offerings. We give our first fruits to God, and then... All that is come is his, and he will bring these things to us for us to enjoy. And so the idea of first fruit is simply this. Whatever the first fruit is, is an indicator of all the harvest that is to come. So you have bad first fruit, then most likely a bad harvest will come. If you have good first fruit and you pick the first fruits that come, like your tree, you pick your orange, you pick your tree, you pick your plum, avocado, you slice it open, you're like, wow, this is a great avocado. And that means a great harvest is coming. And this is an illustration that Paul uses, not only dipping from Leviticus 23, but he dips right now in agrarian culture to say, the first fruit is Jesus. And Jesus is then our representative to the harvest that is to come. That whatever happens to Jesus will happen to the harvest. And if Jesus died and rose again, then the harvest that is to come will one day also guarantee be raised again. All right, 13 people are excited about the first fruit. <laughs> Let me tell you why this is really, really important for you dead people. Because some of you, I'm serious, some of you are too dead. I'll tell you why this is really important, because some of you are really struggling right now. And you're just trying to gut it out. You're struggling, you're challenged in life, you have anxiety, you have doubt, you have grief, and you're just trying to stick it out. You're just kind of biting your upper lip, and you're just kind of struggling through life, and yet you have not exercised this power of the resurrection that comes in the first fruit. Because if you were to understand this first fruit, then you would understand the linkage of the harvest, and that you would have peace, and you would know that this is a, a, a mindset to which you would have. And this is one of the things that you would use this doctrine to kind of face the dangers of today. And let me explain it this way. I love the Warriors. I love the Warriors. But one of my favorite ways to watch the Warriors is after they win. I record the show and I rewatch it over and over again. I'll tell you somebody who doesn't get this is my wife. My wife is like, why do you watch SportsCenter over and over again? Why do you watch the game that you already know what has happened over and over again? And I'm like, woman, I'll tell you why. <laughs> Let me enlighten you. I watch it over and over and over again because in the moment, man, my stomach is churning. My burrito is about to come back up. Man, I'm getting indigestion. I'm feeling sick with nerves and anxiety, and I don't like that feeling. But when I know the results already and the Warriors have won, man, I watch that game, and all of a sudden, oh, the other opponent is catching up. I'm like, watch this, y'all. <laughs> it looks like they're catching up, but they're not caught up. You know why? Because I know how it ends. And for the Christian, 
They know that even though the troubles of life are there and the life is catching up, you're like, this is danger, this is awful. The Christian sets back and says, I know how this ends. And that's why I could relax and watch. And I'm not going to watch with anxiety. I'm going to enjoy my burrito. (laughs) And I'm just going to watch it and chill because you know what? The first fruits of Jesus is that he died and he rose again. If the first fruits is an indication of the harvest, I am part of the harvest resurrection, and I too one day will rise in Jesus' name. Praise God for that. Praise God. Praise God. <laughs> I praise him. And so his bodily resurrection is not done in isolation, but in association, in representation as a first fruit, will come the promise of our consummation with him. This is what it looks like. We will one day be consummated with him. If he is risen, it will then guarantee that you and I will rise. And this is why Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me shall never die, yet he shall live. This is why he says that. And I'll tell you, Paul continues to argue this because I don't think he thinks you believe it. So verse 30, he goes on, and verse 21, he goes on and says, For as by a man, that's Adam, came death. But by a man, Jesus, has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam we all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Now here's the argument. He's saying, we all know that we're going to die. Are you and I certain of death? Absolutely, we know. In fact, the moment that you're born, the clock starts. You are dying. You are dying. That's the reality of our life. Many of us now, we try to slow that process by putting wrinkle cream all over our faces, wasting cucumbers in our eyes. You know, we'll do radical things. We'll work out like crazy just to elongate that process of death. But we know that death is coming. How do we know? They say, you know, there are two certainties in life, death and taxes. But that is not true for the Christian. What's true for the Christian is death and life forever and forever more. That is the reality. But because of Adam, what happened in Adam? He gave us two curses, physical death and the spiritual death. But a new and a second and a better Adam comes, and he actually reverses those two curses of the physical and the spiritual death. How? Because through his death on the cross, he actually destroys sin. And through resurrection uh, from the grave, he actually destroys death. Do you see what's happening here? This is really simple. By a man, Paul says, we were canceled out of Eden, but by another man, we're restored back to paradise. This is what's happening. And Paul's making an argument as clear as day as to say, if you think death is certain, and it is, then Jesus has come to reverse the curse and life after death in a bodily, glorified, redeemed resurrection will also be the guarantee. So if you believe that you will die one day and you're certain about that, Christians, be also just as certain that you will rise from the grave one day and you'll be with Jesus in the most redeemed way. The curse has been reversed by a second man, the better Adam, Jesus Christ. And this is why Paul answers here. He finishes in verse 23, but each in his own order, though, he says, Christ the first fruits, Christ goes first, and then In his coming, or at his coming, the second coming, those who belong to Christ. There it is, the answer at his second coming. And so we're going to get our bodily resurrection, 
our six-pack again at his second coming. We'll first be in paradise, but we'll wait until the bodily resurrection of his second coming more again, again um, on this next week. But here's the second point. Again, not only does the power of the resurrection assure us of our future guarantees it, but the power of the resurrection reveals his authority now, his authority. Look at verse 24. It's rather tricky, but I want us to pause and just deeply respect and just honor the reality of God's authority. Then comes to the end when he delivers, Jesus delivers the kingdom of God to the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. So this is talking about Christ reigns and his authority and power. But look at verse 25. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Now, would you notice here, it says, for he must reign until. Say until. This is really important, the word until. Because most of us think that that reign is absolutely coming at the end when he destroys all of his enemies underfoot. He will make everybody, all his enemies, as his footstool. And he's going to stomp on it, yeah. But until then, he's going to not apply all of his authority. But verse 25 here says he must reign until that happens, which means he will reign then just as much as he is reigning right now. He is reigning right now. And the reason why you and I struggle with whether he is reigning right now with all the authority is like, oh, he'll ramp up like zero to 60. He goes slow, 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 faster, faster, faster. And just like his authority, slow, 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 all the way until the end when he defeats Satan. That's not his authority. He has every authority, just like the same authority with the word of his mouth he created the world. He has that authority, and he's applying it now. But the reason why you and I have, a tr- have trouble believing that is we see such hardship now, such brokenness now, such tragedies now, such grief now. And we think, well, God can't be fully in authority. Jesus is not fully reigning because, you know, Satan has so much dominion in this world, so much fight in this world. There must be a tug-of-war struggle between God and Satan. And that's not true because God is authoritative. Jesus is reigning now. And in the words of Tim Keller, who wrote a book about suffering, this is what he says. He says, there is an asymmetrical relationship of God to evil. Asymmetrical meaning not the same. There's profound philosophy here. We do not have a dualistic view of the world in which there are two equal and opposite forces of good and evil. In that view, life is truly a battlefield and a crapshoot because there's no single force in charge. History is just a struggle between equally balanced forces of good and evil. There's no being powerful enough to carry out a coherent plan for history. Listen, the Bible shows us no such world. God is completely in charge. He has total control over Satan. Satan can go so far and no further. God is clearly sovereign. Amen? Amen. He is, which means that God rules over every single area of your life, and he has not lost control. You know, uh, the power is not equal to Satan. And every drop of power that Satan uses, God responds with an oceanic amount of his fullness and power and washes over us. You see, it's not the same. There's not a tug of war. In fact, if there seems to be a tug of war, God is only allowing those things to happen and allowing Satan to pretend reign and rule so that he'll have the last word because God is writing a greater story. 
God is writing a greater story that you and I can't understand quite yet, but he is. He's in control. You see, in fact, when you, when you read the Great Commission in Matthew 28, do you remember after Jesus came out of the grave, he visits the 11 disciples. He only had 11 because one of them defective, right? And so he talks to the 11 disciples. He takes them up in a hill, and he gives this grand speech of the Great Commission. What does he say? He says, all authority, all authority, not most, all authority has been given unto me in heaven and on earth. You know what heaven and on earth is? It is the existential space of all things, every space, in heaven, in all of dominion, and on earth, every dominion. That means God, through Jesus, I mean, through Jesus, through God, rules and reigns over every cubic inch in all of earth and all of heaven. That's to say that there's not a space in this world where Christ is not ruling right now. And yet you're like, man, he's lost control in my life. Listen, he has not forgotten. There's not an inch of space. You're like, oh, my gosh, I forgot Billy. No, that's not the way Christ rules. Heaven and earth, it includes Billy, and it includes all of us, no matter what you're going through right now. In fact, where does Christ sit right now? Where is he right now? At the right hand of God. You know what that seat symbolizes? Authority. It's a seat of authority. It's a place of authority, the right hand of God, and Christ is ruling. And could I just ask you, wherever you are, in Hayward or online or here, are you going through a difficult, challenging, confusing, maybe particular grief that you only know, that you are struggling with, and immediately you say, Wait, why, would, why would God do this? Where, where is his reign? You know, I, I, I certainly have these moments, and I go through times where it's utterly confusing. As much as I want to be faithful, I'm so faithless. And in those times, what I have to do is I naturally ask, God, why is this happening to me? That's my first question. Why is this happening to me? I discipline myself to always put myself under that one scene in the cross. Remember, I put myself in the crowd of the cross as I watch Jesus get crucified. And there I would join the rest of the crowds like you would have joined the rest of the crowds to say, man, why is this happening to this good guy, Jesus? Because, you know, after all, like, he came to save, and he's been doing such great miracles. He's been healing people. He's been liberating people. He's been feeding people. He does radical miracles. He makes more wine so that we could party. This dude's an awesome dude, and yet this is our hope that socially, that politically, he was going to change everything. He's going to rule over Rome. This was our hope, but now he's dying. God what good could possibly come out of this situation? And I would have been there, and I would have gone home after Jesus died, after they took him down. I would have gone home dejected. I would have gone home discouraged, my faith being so small, thinking, what good could possibly come out of this? But here's the reality that we know now, post-cross, that this is the greatest gift to all mankind. He not only died in our place, but he rose from the grave to give us the utter confidence that our future is not only secure and guaranteed, but he rules right now with authority, even when we think he's dead. So if God is infinitely wise and powerful, and of course he can move about in ways where he could not only have one or two, but a billion reasons as to why he's allowing you to go through 
what you're going through today. And it will not make sense in our little minds why he's doing it because he's infinite in wisdom and infinite in power. But just know this, he rules then, he rules right now. He rules in your life, in our life. And so do not be dismayed. Do not be disheartened. Do not act as if you're under the cross once again. Act and live as if you understand what happened on the cross, that even though you were dismayed, even though we have a propensity to have small faith, remember what Jesus did on the cross. And that's what I remember. I remember what Jesus did and said, I'm not going to act now, this time, in this confusing time, as if I didn't see the cross. I know what happened to the cross. I know who is victorious. I know he's secure. I know he reigns. And so live under those truths. Live under that truth. And this is why Charles Spurgeon once said, in heaven we shall see that we had not one trial too many. He says in heaven when all things are revealed, that you don't see dimly, but all things are revealed, you know everything, we will realize at that moment that we had not one trial too many in your life. That means the trial that you're going through today, there's really a purpose. And one day we'll be with Jesus and say, oh, I get it now. I'm so grateful that I went through that trial. I've not gone through one single hardship in this world where Jesus was not in control and he was using it for my good. That's true because he's authoritative then and now. Here's a third truth that the power of the resurrection shapes our nows. It shapes our nows. Not only guarantees our future, not only do we see his authority here, but the power of the resurrection shapes our nows. Now, I'll tell you what this means. Now, just I'm warning you, verse 29, it's going to, like, confuse you. Okay, verse 29, this is what Paul says. He shifts gears. He says, otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? Huh? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Now, what does this mean? What could this mean? Well, good thing you pay me the big bucks to explain. Okay, so let me just bring some sort of explanation to you. This week I've studied and I've wrestled with this passage and many historians, many scholars have wrestled with this. And it seems like at Paul's day, uh, there's some people who are actually baptizing people either on the site of graves or, or that they were baptizing people, they were being baptized themselves on behalf of those people, their, their loved ones, their uncles, their aunties who's already died, who has not been saved. And so they're being baptized so that they, somehow they could be saved. Now, now is that true? Can, can that happen? Like, no, but you know that, you, do you know that Mormons even today, um, have this thing called baptism for the dead? Do you know that this is a perpetual practice that they do in their temples? And this is their belief that somehow that you could, you're, you're only saved by works, not by faith, which means you have to be baptized in order to be saved and go to heaven and own your planet. And, and so if you don't, and the, the people that have died before you, then, then you could, on behalf of them, be baptized so that they get the credit for it even though they've been fully judged already. 
And then they'll be saved. And this is why they're really into their ancestry. And this is why they study their history. And that's why they save pictures. And they go years and years, generations on end. And every time they're baptized for these people, these people somehow, they believe uh, that they will, they'll be saved too. Because eventually, more, I mean, Mormons, they believe that you have to be baptized in order for you to be saved. It's not an expression of the inward faith. It is actually the work that saves. This is what they believe. And some erroneously and heinously actually believe that they could save more people than Jesus himself. Because they've been baptized a bunch of times. They've been wet. They've gotten a bunch of resume t-shirts, you know. Baptism. They have like a thousand of them. Like, I baptize more people than Jesus. They, they actually think that. Wow. That's heretical. That's terrible. And that's really sad. So, so, let me ask you this question. What does this verse mean? Let me just clear it up for you once and for all. Ready? I don't know. <laughs> I, don't, I, I, I actually don't know. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't know what this means. Um, but could I just tell you? Uh, though there are a dozen interpretations, it, it, could I just, instead of spelling out all the interpretations and possibilities of what this means, could I just share with you what I do know in context of, of this passage? Paul recognizes here that people are actually being buried, I mean, baptized on behalf of the dead. But he's not affirming it. He's not affirming that that's the right thing to do. He's just affirming that it's actually happening. And in fact, Scripture doesn't teach anywhere else that that, that can be possible. In, in contrary, the Scripture tells us in Hebrews that, you know, it's only appointed man one life and one death, and after that comes judgment, right? And Paul knows that you're not saved by baptism. You're saved by faith. He actually wrote Ephesians. And so, so Paul knows these things. But we have to remember, who was Paul talking to? To the Corinthian church, they were not so much in doubt of Jesus' resurrection, even though there was some doubt, because after all, in 1 Corinthians 15, two weeks ago, we we're talking about how like, Paul was giving evidence of all these people that saw the resurrection and said, hey, go check out those 500 people that, that, that witnessed the resurrection and talk to them now, so most of them who are alive. And so they were struggling with the resurrection, but more so, they were struggling with the implications of the resurrection. They're just wondering, what does the resurrection do? And this is what they're struggling with. And so this is Paul's main point, I think. What he's saying is because he's going to a group of guys that are baptizing themselves with the hope that they could actually save loved ones who have already passed without the faith. What Paul is saying here is, hey, if you guys don't even believe in the resurrection fully, okay, what is the point of getting baptized on behalf of other people? I think that's Paul's point. He's saying... If you believe enough of the resurrection that you would actually be baptized for the benefit of ancestors, then why don't you believe the resurrection enough to live a life that is full of allegiance and devotion to Jesus Christ? You see, there's, there's, there's an inconsistency there. And Paul is calling out the incongruency. You have enough faith in the uh, resurrection of Jesus to do this, but not this. And that's what he's saying. And I think this really makes sense because then he cites in verse 30, look at me, look at my example because I believe in the resurrection. Verse 30, he says, why are we, including himself in his life and his disciples, you know, why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. Listen, because I believe in the resurrection, I die every day. What do I gain, humanly speaking, 
Listen, I fought with beasts at Ephesus. He's not talking about animals. He's talking about human animals, antagonistic crowds in Ephesus that he's met there. He says, if the dead are not raised, if you and I don't believe in baptism, I mean, the resurrection, this is what he says. Let us eat then and drink, and tomorrow we die. That's, that's what happens. Now, this is the philosophy of Epicureanism. This was a rampant philosophy that existed then. It is a rampant philosophy of what exists right now because even in the church, as resurrected people, we have the faith to believe in the resurrection that I'll live, but we don't have the faith to know and live right now consistently to the idea that if the resurrection is true and my ultimate destination is coming, then why are you living as if your ultimate destination is here in this world? And Paul is saying, Listen, that's rather pretty inconsistent. Because if you don't believe in the resurrection is true, you should eat, drink, and you die. That's it. You're gone. You should live like that. You should wake up every day just thinking, what video game should I play? Halo 3 today or Call of Duty or whatever and eat and drink. And that's all I should do every day. I should sleep. I shouldn't go to work because, you know, eventually I'll die. That's the life that we should live. We should only live for me. Don't ever do anything for anyone. You know, natural selection, man, you know, it's just, it's just dog eat dog. You know, survival of the fittest. And so just live for yourself, and that's it. That's it, a me-centered life. So if there's no resurrection power, there's no resurrection at all, then just live for yourself. But, this is Paul's argument, if, listen, if the resurrection is true, if it is true, then Jesus saved you, and he's going to resurrect you, then you have a new call in your life. You have a new call. You have a new cause. Jesus, do you know he never saves you just for you, but he, calls, he saves you for a cause. You know what that cause is? Verse 28 says so, so that God may be all in all. That in your life, God will be all in all, meaning all of your life, God will be all of it. That's what it means, that God wants the glory. He, he didn't just save you so that you could actually just hang out with Jesus in the future. He wants to use you right now. And this is why verse 28, look at, I mean, 2 Corinthians 1.8, later we'll see this. You know, Paul says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction that we experienced in Asia. This only makes sense because why did I go through such hardship, he says. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. He's like, man, I just wanted to die. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was only to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. You see, what Paul is saying here is that's my hope, and that's why I could go through all this hardship right now, because one day I believe that I will be raised up. As the first fruit was raised up, I am part of that harvest. And I will be resurrected. That in the future, my future is guaranteed that he reigns in authority. And that shapes my nows right now. And so if the bodily resurrection is true, then there's a greater destination that is coming. Do you believe that? That there is a greater destination that is coming? Then why do we live the life that we do right now? You know, in 2007, there was this movie called The Bucket List. You know, you know, Jack Nicholson, Morgan Freeman? You've seen it? Everybody who's nodding is over 40. I get it. Yeah, <laughs> only old people watch this. I've watched it too, okay? 
you know, what, what is this movie about? Well, Morgan Freeman and Jack Nicholson, two friends, they, they both are stricken with uh, terminal cancer. They're about to die. And so they're creating a bucket list. Before they die, they want to live it up. They want to live in this world. They want to live fully, right? And basically, they want all these things fulfilled in this world before they kick the bucket, so to speak. And so now there's nothing wrong with the bucket list. You might have a bucket list. Every good gift is given from above so that we might uh, glorify Jesus. So that's, that's all good if you have a bucket list. But I do believe that you and I, including the church, uh, live sometimes too much into the, the baseline premise of this movie. And what is the premise of this movie? Well, it's wrapped up in one line of what Jack Nicholson says in the movie. He says, we live and we die. That's what he says. We live and we die. In fact, wasn't that Paul's argument? He said, hey, if there's no resurrection at all, then, you know, we drink, we, we eat, and we die. That's it, right? But could I ask you, Christians, is that true? We just die? That's it? No. Because we'll live, and guess what? We'll live on. We'll live on, and we'll be in paradise with Jesus until the second coming of Christ when we get new bodies, when we're fully redeemed, when we're fully glorified in him. And therefore, listen, will you get this? We should then not live as if this is the only life we have. Why would we do that? We shouldn't live like as if this is the only world that we see. I mean, look at Paul. His value was not found in trying to line up all of his vacations. His life was not found in trying to acquire a vacation home or, or, or how to retire early. That's not where his life was all about. And so many of our lives, though, that's our dream. You know why Paul lived that way? Because he knew there was a better world coming. And that there's a different destination. And that he was only passing through. He was only passing through. Listen, have you ever saved up for an epic vacation that you were just wish, wishing, man, I got to go here, I got to go here. You look at the pamphlet, you talk to your travel agent, man, this is my dream, this is my dream. So you start saving money, you start working extra hours, and you save and you save, you make lunch every single day, and so you're saving, you have that little picture of the, you know, Bora Bora, Tahiti, wherever you want to go, and you're inspired by it, you know? And so you make all the decisions, finally, you actually get all the money that you needed to go on that vacation. So you buy that airplane ticket, and finally the day arrives where you're ready to go on that trip. So what do you do? You get to the airport, man, and you go to the terminal where your gate is, and you get to the gate, and guess what? You sit down, you look at your plane, you're like, oh my gosh, it's coming. I can't believe that I'm going to go to Tahiti. It's so close, man. I could just taste the salt water. It's going to be marvelous. It's going to be so relaxing and wonderful, right? I'll tell you something that you'll never do. You'll never go to the terminal, look at the gate. Uh, I'm here one hour early. Some of you who are anxious, three hours early. And, and you'll never do this. You'll never say, amen. I have to live up this terminal and squeeze every benefit that there is here. I got to sit at every gate. I got to use that plug, and I got to extract all the benefits, man. You know, there's always that Starbucks. There's always that, you know, Chick-fil-A or McDonald's, or there's always that Hudson News, you know, that weird place where they sell magazines. You don't go, man, I got to go to that, you know, uh, Starbucks. I got to get that muffin. It only cost me eight bucks. Yes. 
You don't say that. You don't like, I got to go get that Chick-fil-A sandwich that cost me $30. Yeah, right on. And go to Hudson News. I'm like, I haven't touched a physical magazine in years, but I'm going to pick up a couple of them and buy that chocolate and some nuts. And, you know, I'm going to eat that candy. And I'm going to sit at every gate because I got to just experience everything. I got to extract all the benefits there is. Why would you never do such a thing? Because there's a better destination coming. That is not your destination. That's not all that you're living for. That you're going to get on the plane for something else. And yet so many of us in this world are living for the terminal. And you are extracting the benefits of the terminal so much that many of you will miss the destination. Your plane will take off. And you realize that you're not saved because you're living for the world. That's all you believe. You don't believe in the resurrection. You don't believe there's a plane that's waiting for you. You live for the terminal, and that's it. And I fear for you. I fear for you. Listen, if a disciple traveled in time and came and watched your life for a week, would they think that you're a biblical disciple? That it makes sense of all the disciples that are written in Scripture? They're like, oh, yeah, it makes sense, the decision, the way you talk, who you talk to. It makes sense. Or would they say, wait a minute, you're life in doesn't look the same. Would they be confused that you're a Christian just by the decisions and the interests that you have to the affections that you have? I'm not sure if this is ever true of you, but sometimes when I read Jesus' life, Peter's life, and Paul's life, I'll read Timothy's life and John's life. I'll read and say, man, their life, the hardship that they've gone through, it just doesn't Describe my life. Because you and I, living in this Western world, we're like allergic to suffering. We're so weak. We just avoid suffering like crazy, whatever it takes. And just don't let me suffer, Jesus. And we never pray the prayer to say, help me suffer for you. Never comes out of our mouths. Maybe because you, you like living in your terminal. And maybe you believe that that's all there is. Or maybe you're trying to extract the benefits of both. Remember what Jesus says. You can't have two masters. You only have one. You know, this Wednesday I was in Houston preaching at a group, a, a, a little conference, a bunch of church planters that, was being, that were being sent out. And there were six church planters among hundreds of people that are just cheering them on in good faith, believing that as they plant churches, that they're going to make a difference in their generation, in their city. Man, it inspired me because it just brought me to memory of 13 years ago when we planted from my little living room where 30 people, 30 of our friends just dreamt about a church where we preach the gospel and many people would get saved. We dreamt about that, and it just inspired me again. I was just so proud of them. One of them came up to me right before I, came, I was about to preach. He says, hey, my name is Jonathan. I'm like, hey, I'm Ryan. I'm just so proud of you. I've been on your journey, and you inspire me today to live more faithfully. He goes, you know, I've met you before. I'm like, you have? And he's like, yeah, 22 years ago. 22 years ago? That's a long time. I'm sorry I've forgotten you. My brain doesn't work as good as it did. And he's like, we met 22 years ago when you 
preached in Houston at a junior high camp, which I was a junior higher. I was like, really? And now you're planting a church? Tell me about your life. He said, from junior high, my parents always told me to be a doctor. So I went to one of the prestigious universities and went to a prestigious med school. And now I'm a doctor. But I'm like, but how are you going to plant a church? He says, I'm not going to be a doctor. I'm going to be a church planter. And so I'm like, you, you will leave your lucrative job of making hundreds and hundreds and thousands of dollars and all the respect, and you're going to be a nobody and plant a church like me? And he's like, yeah. And I saw his parents, front seat, celebrating that their son is leaving the things of this world to say no to the terminal so that because he knows the destination. And you know why? Do you know why he's making this decision? Because Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 17, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Do you see, only if you and I believe in the resurrection, only, only people of the resurrection believe that this affliction is something that we would ever dare to choose in this world because we know there's a destination coming. And that this destination, I mean, this affliction is, uh, is light why, in comparison to the weight of glory that we'll receive and that it is so momentary because you and I will live in this glory forever and ever and ever. Resonate Church, some of you are living in the terminal and for the terminal. And I want to compel you as best as I can. That's not where you're supposed to go. You have a greater destination. And it is coming. And it's going to come really fast. Will you live a life where you might even welcome suffering to say, I don't want to just welcome suffering. I don't want to just endure suffering. I want to experience suffering for Jesus. That's very different. Will you choose suffering for Jesus? Because he suffered for you. And he suffered for you in such a complete way that you are absolutely assured, assured through his first fruit that you too will receive this glorious resurrection as he. Until then, will you serve him? Will you suffer? Maybe some of you are called to missionaries. Maybe some of you are called to serve our church or the city as today we have a serve expo that, that you would deeply consider, man, what would, it look, what, I, what would it look like for me to live not for the terminal but for a destination? It's to serve Jesus now. And some of you maybe today are not believers and saying, man, I got to believe. I think that this world is all there is. I'm realizing today I need to put my faith in Jesus. Would you? Because God assures you, guarantees you that your future is elsewhere. It's with him. It's the best place we could ever be. For this world, would you suffer for Jesus? Would you choose suffering for him? Let's pray. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory that is beyond all comparison. In faith, Father, I, I pray that you would help us to believe that. And so many of us have been chasing this world as if this world is all there is. Some of us want to extract the benefits of both worlds when it doesn't even make sense that we shouldn't even spend a penny at Hudson News. But we do anyway, because we think this life is so glorious. Father, in light of who you are, in light of what awaits us, Father, I pray that you would just give us hearts that would ju just see this world as such a dim place, and that you would use us for your glory now, that God may be all in all. 
and that you would help us to see that this affliction that we choose for your glory is only momentary and it is light in comparison to what you have gone through and in comparison to what is coming for us. I pray that those will be the Christians that we are here at Resonate Church, people of the resurrection. I pray in your matchless name, our King, our Savior, and our Lord, all God's people said, amen. Let's praise him.